The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. Uh, I teach at Brown University, and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show. This week, my guest is Reza Aslan. He's a writer and scholar uh, who is the author of many books, some of them bestsellers, uh, Zealot, a biography of Jesus, controversy, uh, and uh, most recently, An American Martyr in Persia, the epic life and tragic death of Howard Baskerville, uh, which it was my great pleasure to read uh, and learn from. Uh, and we're here to talk about that, amongst other things. So uh, welcome, Reza. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be on the program. Thank you. You are Iranian by descent, am I correct? That's right. I was actually born in Iran, uh, and my family came to the U.S. in 1979 after the revolution, after the Shah had been thrown out. Did you know about Howard Baskerville uh, as you were coming up as a kid? I did. In fact, you know, I, I would probably venture to, to guess that I was the last generation for whom Howard Baskerville was a household name. I mean, there were streets named Howard Baskerville in my neighborhood. There were schools called, you know, Baskerville. Uh, I think it was a, there was a big auditorium uh, in, in Tehran called Howard Baskerville. Um, you know, he was um, someone that really until, you know, the aftermath of the 79 revolution was uh, a, a figure that was taught in schools that, you know, people just knew who he was very much in the same way that I think most Americans know who Lafayette was. I mean, obviously now, thanks to Hamilton, everybody knows who Lafayette was. But this idea of a foreigner who fought in in a uh, another nation's revolution, uh, that mythos was ever present when I was growing up in Iran. Now, my guess is that most of our audience don't know who Howard Baskerville was unless they've come across your book. So uh, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you tell us? Well, indeed, that was the biggest reason why I wanted to write the book, because when I came to America, I was, I guess, seven, eight years old and very quickly sort of realized no one had ever heard of this American missionary who is a hero in, in Iran. Uh, it was really surprising to me. Howard Baskerville was a Christian missionary. He was 22 years old, a recent graduate of Princeton University in 1907, uh, when he was assigned a two-year teaching and missionary gig in what was then known as Persia, right before the country was officially named Iran. And he showed up by chance uh, right in the midst of the first democratic revolution in the entire Middle East, um, uh, a revolution that today is referred to as the Persian Constitutional Revolution. So a couple of years before Baskerville had arrived in 1907, a group of young, uh, fairly well-educated uh, Iranian men and women uh, poured out onto the streets and demanded from the Shah a constitution a document that would outline all the rights and privileges of every citizen in the United uh, in in uh, Iran, and a parliament, uh, an elected legislative assembly that would have not just the ability to pass legislation, but far more importantly, would be able to act as a curb on the unchecked authority of the Shah. It took a couple of years of of bloodshed and strikes and. Uh, you know, fighting on the streets, but they achieved their goals. They got both a constitution, a fairly progressive document that outlined not just the rights and privileges, but freedoms of speech, uh, freedom of conscience, conscience and thought, uh, freedom of religion, though it did say that Islam is the primary religion. 
Um, and then uh, a legislature, uh, an elected body that for the first time was able to actually pass popularly supported laws in the country. But unfortunately, as so often happens in these kinds of historical <laughs> stories, uh, the Shah who signed that constitution and allowed for uh, the parliament to be uh, established died a few days later in his bed. And his son, a 35-year-old man by the name of Muhammad Ali, not that Muhammad Ali, different Muhammad <laughs> Ali, uh, um, came uh, into power. And this was a man, you know, who had spent his entire life being told that the country was his by birthright, that God had made him Shah. And he was incensed with his father for having given in to what he thought of as, you know, the, the, the rabble. Um, and so as a result, launched with his Russian-trained military, uh, launched a counter-revolution, essentially, um, against the revolutionaries, and over the next couple of years, managed to uh, take back the entirety of the country, every city, every province for the crown, except for one city. <laughs> this city in the Northwest, a historically problematic city with a problematic population named Tabriz. And it was that city that Howard Baskerville arrived in in 1907 in order to preach the gospel and teach English. Yeah. He was uh, educated at Princeton. Woodrow Wilson was one of the people who recommended him, as, as I recall. He was a teacher of Howard Baskerville uh, and uh, wrote a letter supporting his uh, petition to become a missionary. Uh, one of the things I found most fascinating uh, about your book was your recreation of the ethos of this time uh, in the elite American academy and uh, Presbyterian hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, that would lead someone, where was he from, South Dakota or something like that? He was born in Nebraska, but because he came from a long line of Presbyterian ministers, his father was a Presbyterian minister, his grandfather, his older brother, his uncle, they traveled a lot. And so, yes, he, he, he immediately he went from South Dakota to Princeton. And traveled halfway around the world. What would have motivated a young man with such promise and all the opportunity at his hand to... Uh, pack his life into a steamer trunk <laughs> and, tra and travel 7,000 miles or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's old. Well, so honestly, Woodrow Wilson had a huge role to play in it. By the time that Baskerville arrived at Princeton in 1903, uh, Woodrow Wilson was already the president of the university. He had been the most popular professor for almost a decade. Um, and uh, he had taken over uh, the university and... Uh, you know, again, this boy, Woodrow Wilson, he's a tough character to talk about because on the one hand, he defeated fascism. Not bad. Um, you know, created the, the League of Nations, a precursor to the United Nations. He essentially what we now consider to be modern international law was in large part, you know, due to, to Woodrow Wilson. Um, the po post-war order you know, has a lot to do with Woodrow Wilson. On the other hand, he was, as has been exhaustively uh, recorded at this point, documented at this point, an unapologetic racist. I, I mean, of the worst kind. And I could give a bunch of examples. I mean, he, he, he made Princeton the only Ivy League school that would not allow black students in. And when he was asked why, he said, because it would be embarrassing for them and for us. Uh, when he became president of the United States, he fired the entirety of the black federal workforce, uh, which is astonishing to think about. Um, you know, this is a man who supported the Confederate cause long after the Civil War was over. Uh, and he was still uh, lionizing the Confederacy in his writings. This is a man who once screened Birth of a Nation at the White House. <laughs> so, and knew you know, what he was doing, excuse me. I mean, knew, knew, understood what he was doing uh, in doing so. Unquestionably. I mean, when I say unapologetic, I, I truly mean that. 
at the same time, he had this conception about democracy as the divine will of God. This notion that all peoples everywhere uh, deserved popular sovereignty and freedom of choice and the ability to decide who governs them. And he married that political philosophy with this deep theological reflection. You know, he really had a, a religious conception of politics that made him an incredibly compelling teacher and thinker when he was at Princeton. And he also, uh, also by chance, had kind of reorganized the entire higher education system by creating at Princeton what nowadays is known as the electives program. So for all those, you know, college students out there who had, you know, who took jazz appreciation or whatever the case may be, uh, you can thank Woodrow Wilson for that. Um, he had this concept that you shouldn't just study the things that that are in your particular field. You should be forced to study uh, courses uh, and disciplines outside of your chosen field. And so Baskerville, uh, you know, as a, a freshman at uh, Princeton, almost immediately fell under Wilson's uh, influence. And during his junior year, although he was there to study Christian ministry, during his junior year, he was forced by this elective system to take two courses outside of his major. And he chose two courses taught by Woodrow Wilson, a course on uh, jurisprudence and another one on international governance. And I think those courses changed his life. I mean, I, I you know, the, the plan was he would graduate from Princeton and go back to South Dakota and become a Presbyterian minister, just like everybody else in his family. But this conception that God's will for all human beings in every dark corner of the world is for freedom and democracy really uh, wormed its way into uh, Baskerville's consciousness. And so when he graduated, rather than go back to South Dakota, he decided that he wanted to go and see the world. And when you're a 22-year-old, middle-class, you know, white Christian in 1907 and you want to see the world, there's really only one way to do that. And that is you become a missionary. And that's exactly what he did. He desperately wanted to go to China and Japan because he'd heard these incredible stories about how successful the Christian mission was in, in the Far East. But much uh, to his dismay, he was instead assigned to a relatively new missionary uh, program, a missionary school called the American Memorial School in Tabriz, Persia. And so... Off he went, you know, seven, 8,000 miles uh, to a land he'd never heard of before, a country he knew nothing about, a people he had nothing in common with, uh, a place he desperately did not want to go. Uh, but, you know, once the church tells you this is where you're headed, that's where you're headed. Now, I couldn't help asking myself, I knew, of course, about Woodrow Wilson, whether or not this young man who acclimated himself, it seemed to me, on your account so well once he did get to Tabriz in terms of language and culture, making friends, falling in love with the people and so on. Whether or not uh, he shared, that is Baskerville shared with Woodrow Wilson some of this uh, racism. Uh, and if so, then why uh, it didn't get in the way of his... Uh, of his performance and uh, in in acclimating himself uh, yeah. to the culture and the environment when he got to to Persia, yeah, I asked the same question myself in the book. I did a lot of research into Baskerville's um, genealogy and his background, and he had very significant uh, Confederate soldiers in his family. Um, uh, in fact. Uh, I think maybe it was his great uncle, I believe. I might be getting that one wrong, but his great uncle was a, a prominent surgeon for the Confederate forces who was actually uh, captured and arrested by the Union and then ultimately released. What I can say is this, is that he was a privileged white man in 1907. And so, you know, he probably didn't even consider race, uh, Woodrow Wilson's racism as an issue. 
I mean, I, you know, I'd like to think that maybe he uh, wrestled with it in some way and tried hard to do what we try to do 100 years later, which is reconcile Wilson's grotesque racism with this sort of yeah. idea about, you know, divine freedom for all peoples everywhere, except, I guess, black people in America. I, I don't, it's hard to reconcile those things. But if I were to be perfectly honest, I bet he never even thought about it. I bet he, his privilege and his race and his place in society uh, made it so that it didn't really concern him. What I do think is important is that everything ever anyone had ever said about uh, Baskerville and all the writings, all the commentaries, both during his life and after his death, no one ever says anything about you know his racism. No one ever brings it up in any way. No one ever talks about it in any way. And as you rightly say, when given the opportunity to live amongst, serve, love, fight for, and then ultimately die for yeah. uh, people of a different race, it never occurred to him to do anything other than that. It, it just, so, you know, you can, as a biographer, you can only get so deeply involved in someone's soul <laughs> who's been dead for a hundred years. But all I can say is that it probably never occurred to him to question how to reconcile Wilson's racism with his political and religious ideology. Why don't you share a little bit about how uh, this young man found himself drawn into the conflict? And I mean, it was, was it not quite uh, contrary to the orientation of the mission organization itself? They were yeah. supposed to stay out of the political affairs <laughs> yeah, of the locals. That's... That is a, a key requirement for missionaries to this day is that you're not there to deal with politics. The government has nothing to do with you. You are there, you know, to save souls. And that's certainly something that he was told repeatedly. But recall that he arrives in Persia in the middle of a popular uprising led mostly by young people to demand uh, freedom and democracy in a country that had lived under a totalitarian monarchy for, well, frankly, a couple of thousand years at that point. So in other words, from his point of view, everything that Woodrow Wilson told him was going to happen was happening before his eyes. He had stepped into a history book. He had stepped into the real life version of the lectures that he had been attending. So he was almost immediately drawn into uh, the, the sort of the ideology behind this conflict. He was, you know, an adamant supporter of the revolution and the revolutionaries. And Tabriz, the city in which he was living, was the, the core, the heart, the center of this revolution, yeah. you know, all of the, the kids that he taught, their parents, their, their older siblings were fighting, literally fighting in this revolution. The teachers at the school, especially the Persian teachers at the school, um, were some of the more uh, um, compelling leaders of this revolution. So he was fully immersed in it from the very, very beginning. But as you rightly say, was repeatedly told by the school that uh, hired him, by the church that had sent him there, and by the U.S. government especially, that this revolution was none of his business, that he was not there to save lives, he was there to save souls, that, you know, whether the country was a democracy or a monarchy had nothing to do with, you know, Baskerville's function in uh, ushering in the kingdom of God. And that while obviously, as a Christian and as a missionary, he had to serve the needs of the people, uh, you know, help, help them and heal them and feed them and care for them, he could not in any way uh, be involved or, for that matter, even take a position, take a side um, in this conflict. And he, to his credit, tried for a good year or so, uh, put his head down, taught his classes, uh, you know, preached on Sundays when he was called to do so, uh, spread the gospel as best he could, though, 
from you know the evidence that I gathered, did not do a very good job of spreading the gospel. I've actually worked very hard to find a single person, one person that he had managed to convert in the nearly two years that he was in Tabriz, and I have not found one, not a single one. So he wasn't that good at it, <laughs> but that's what he was there to do. But again, as this counter-revolution that I was talking about uh, starts to gain uh, steam, and as the Shah's ruthless forces are conquering every part of the country on their way to the northwest uh, where Tabriz is, um, and certainly by the time they arrive at Tabriz and begin to besiege the city, slowly starving the inhabitants to death in order to get them to surrender, he just simply cannot stay on the sidelines any longer. And at first, it, very secretly, he begins to provide aid and support to uh, the revolutionary army. He's discovered uh, by by the, uh, the Americans that he's been doing this this whole time, like, you know, giving them information and finding out uh, intelligence. And uh, he's been uh, perusing the Encyclopedia Britannica at the missionary school uh, and learning how to uh, get advice on like military formations and, and bomb making techniques. And he's passing that information over to the Revolutionary Army. He gets in big trouble for this. He's told... You know, that if he doesn't cease his activities, he'll be sent home. It's the last thing in the world that he wants. He does not want to miss what's about to happen in this country. So he stops for a while. But then once this siege of the city uh, starts to result in the slow starvation of thousands and thousands of men, women, and children, he simply cannot stay quiet any longer. And he quite famously one day uh, walks into his classroom um, and he says, I can no longer bear to remain silent in the face of the suffering of these people that I have come to love. The only way that I know how to serve this country and these people is to quit my job, is to give up my missionary status and to go join them in this revolution. And in one of those kind of made for Hollywood moments, his students stand up and walk out with him and join him on the battlefield. And I don't need to tell you, this is a disaster for the school. I mean, it's one thing for one of their teachers to sort of quit and pick up a gun and go join the, the fight. It's another thing to take your students with you. Yeah. <laughs> and so they try very hard to get him to change his mind. The American government intervenes, uh, threatens him with treason, as a matter of fact, says, this is not your fight. These are not your people. If you do not cease these activities and return back to the United States, we will have no choice but to charge you with treason. And in this kind of remarkable moment, Baskerville takes a look at this battlefield around him, these people who are fighting for their most basic rights, and he says, the only difference between me and these people is the country of my birth. And that is a very small difference. And he hands over his passport, gives up his American citizenship, his American protection, and becomes one of the, the commanders of this revolutionary army that is fighting the besieging force of the Shah. This is an Islamic country. Where are the clergy uh, in this uh, contestation between the Shah and, and those who would establish a, uh, uh, you know, a legislature? Right. Well, and what would probably come as the biggest surprise to most uh, observers of Iran, uh, even the most casual observer of Iran, is that the clergy were almost unanimously on the side of the revolutionaries. And when I say almost unanimously, um, the Grand Ayatollahs of Najaf in current uh, day Iraq, which is essentially the Vatican, if you will, of Shia Islam, issued a fatwa. This means a, a religious ruling saying that support of the revolution and its goals is 
a divine commandment and that supporting the Shah against the revolution is a, a grave sin. I mean, that's how seriously they were involved. A large number of the first elected represent, uh, representatives of the new parliament were themselves members of the clergy. Their, um, their sort of goals were very much in alignment with sort of the general goals of the revolutionaries, which was an end to corruption in the court, uh, an end to tyranny, um, the rights of the people, uh, and especially sort of economic equality, right? That was a huge part of, of this revolution is, you know, the Shah and his cronies own all the wealth and everybody else is suffering. And so a big part of the revolution and the reason to have an independent legislature was to more equally distribute the resources of the country to its people. So the clergy were, as I say, overwhelmingly uh, uh, fighting on behalf of the revolutionaries. And, and in fact, many scholars would tell you that's why it worked. That's why the revolution worked is the clergy joined forces with these young zealous, you know, progressive democratic in individuals who were fighting on the streets. There were, of course, a number of uh, clerics, mullahs, who were adamantly against it, and they had played a pretty good role, a pretty huge role in, in fighting on behalf of the Shah. Um, but in general, the clerical establishment uh, was very much in favor of the revolution and its goals. What happened that uh, the Shah was able, uh, Muhammad Ali, to, uh, to crush this uh, revolution city by city? And, and what ensued uh, after the zeal of the you know, popular uprising uh, had abated? Well, Muhammad Ali Shah was a very weak-willed individual. Um, he um, was scared to death of his people. You know, he uh, truly believed, as I said before, that God had appointed him Shah and that only God could take this power away. But he, he felt powerless to, to fight back against uh, the revolutionary movement. But he had one very powerful ally, and that was Tsar Nicholas II, the, the Tsar of the Russian Empire, who two years earlier in 1905 had barely survived his own democratic uprising, the Russian Revolution of 1905, which uh, the Tsar um, was able to crush only by relying on absolute overwhelming violence. I mean, the slaughter of women and children on the street is how he managed to finally crush that revolution. And as soon as he crushes it, another revolution starts in the southern border, you know, among one of his closest allies. And so the czar, I think, in his mind, having learned the lesson, because he had also given a little bit. He said, fine, you want a constitution? Fine, you want a Duma, a, a parliament? I'll give you those things. And rather than stop the revolutionaries, it actually just emboldened them for more until, you know, he set his military loose. So making, wanting to make sure that that, never, that did not happen in his southern border, he sent the Shah, uh, one of his best military commanders, uh, a man by the name of Lyakov. Um, and Lyakov, now you have to understand that the P Persian Empire really re relied on the Russian Empire for everything. Like they basically, you know, uh, the military especially was trained by Russian uh, commanders. It was uniformed by Russians. It was uh, uh, armed by Russians. Uh, and in fact, they they were even paid by Russian rubles that went through the Persian court. Um, so it was a quote unquote Persian military, but one that was commanded, trained, armed and funded by Russians. And so the czar through Lyakov made it very clear to Muhammad Ali that if he wanted to maintain Russian support going forward, that he needed to respond to this revolution uh, with absolute force. 
and that don't worry about it, the Russians will take care of the force part. Um, and so almost immediately uh, after taking uh, control, he launched a full-scale attack on the House of Parliament. He actually had his Russian commanders roll cannons onto the parliament building and to blow up the building with the parliamentarians still inside. They were in the middle of a session, actually, uh, when uh, cannon fire reduced the building to rubble. And that action was that moment in which he declared war against the revolution and then using this Russian-trained military uh, slowly took over everything. The reason why he couldn't take over Tabriz, however, was that every city that he would uh, conquer back for the crown, revolutionaries would flee to Tabriz. So by the time he got all the way to Tabriz, basically the entire revolutionary army was behind those walls and they were ready. And more interestingly, the revolutionaries who were very smart in, in being able to use propaganda to promote their cause um, issued around that time something called the Nationalist Manifesto, which was basically an appeal that they sent to um, all the capitals of Europe and North America saying, we are fighting for our most basic freedom. Come fight with us. And it worked. So, you know, Russian revolutionaries, Armenian revolutionaries, Georgian revolutionaries, Europeans, uh, everyone flocked to Tabriz to take, to take uh, part in what was at that time the largest, most successful anti-imperialist revolution in the world. And so by the time the Shah's forces arrived in Tabriz, they understood very quickly that they could not conquer the city using just military means. And so that's when they made that fateful decision to encircle the city and just starve it to death instead. And it was that mass starvation, that horrific humanitarian crisis that ultimately convinced this one American to also join this international anti-imperialist anti-imperialist force. Here we are with the holidays looming just ahead. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah. It's time that we reflect on our families and the traditions that we cherish and we look forward to the future. Life insurance is an important part of my vision for my family's future. You see, holidays not only allow me to spend time with family, but they are a reminder of how important my responsibility is to protect them. That includes planning to secure their future. Life insurance is an easy way to give your family peace of mind. It provides a safety net, so if something were to happen, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top insurance companies, and their team of licensed experts are on hand to help talk you through it. I have life insurance, though I'm about to retire from my job, and I'm going to have to purchase a term policy. I am going to be looking to Policy Genius to help me protect my children and my grandchildren and my younger wife. Now, even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. Mine won't. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius knows how valuable your time is. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius, it's for parents, for caregivers, and for anyone else who has people who depend upon them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so you can protect the people you love. 
No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your family deserves peace of mind. A life insurance policy through Policy Genius can give it to them. So head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Now, you say that uh, Baskerville was a household name prior to the uh, revolution of 1979 in Iran. How, how do the, the mullahs uh, who took power, the ayatollahs, remember this period in Persian history? <laughs> right. It's complicated. Uh, <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> it's funny because you know, there have been three major revolutions in the 20th century of Iran, the 1904. Five uh, constitutional revolution that we're talking about, the 1953 nationalist revolution. Both of those revolutions resulted in removing a Shah from power. The 153, the Americans and the CIA put the Shah back into power. And then the 79 revolution. And what's really fascinating about those three revolutions is that it was the same exact coalition that came together to remove the Shah from power all three times. The young intellectuals, who sort of gave um, the 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 sort of the the ideology behind the movement, um, the uh, clerics who had the ability to get people out onto the streets, and then the merchants who had the ability to uh, using strikes and closures to force um, the the economy to the brink of collapse, thereby. Um, uh, you know, essentially forcing the Shah to give in. That coalition worked in 1905, it worked in 1953, and it worked in 1979. But in 79, after in the post-revolutionary chaos, the mullahs used that vacuum of power to take control, it was very difficult to kind of rely on the, the sort of historical ideology, and certainly not the 1905, because... You know, the although in that case, sure, mullahs were part of a revolution that was successful and those mullahs had roles in government, except that those mullahs were to a person progressive and democratic. And so, you know, a hundred years later, it's very hard to use those those same mullahs as kind of the icons or the exemplars around which you make an argument for why mullahs should be part of the government because the politics is vastly different. You know, the mullahs in 1905 weren't saying this is an Islamic country that needs to be predicated on Islamic law and run directly by the mullahs. Uh, that was an ideology that didn't even exist. It was an idea that that hadn't occurred to anyone in 1905. Um, but on top of that, because this revolution very quickly took on such a profoundly anti-American ethos, the idea that you would continue to lionize this American, and not just an American, but an American Christian, and not just an American Christian, but an American Christian missionary who had come here to convert Muslims to Christ, but who had instead fought and died you know, for uh, the freedom of, of Iranians, he, again, it was... It was he created a problem, a headache. And so it was just easier to simply remove his name from all the textbooks and to stop teaching him in school and to rename the streets and to rename the auditoriums and the schools. And here we are a generation later, and it is difficult to find anyone in Iran. It's difficult to find anyone in Tabriz where his tomb still exists and where there is a museum dedicated to Howard Baskerville, it's hard to find anyone who actually knows who Howard Baskerville is, certainly anyone under the age of 50. Now, you say in 1905, uh, the Islamists would have not thought about an Islamic Republic of Iran. The joining of church and state, so to speak, wasn't even a thought in their minds. Did not exist where, as a philosophy. So where does that, and forgive my ignorance, where does that philosophy come from? Well. It starts in a very real way 
with uh, the birth of what we know as modern Egypt and modern Pakistan. Those are the first times in which the idea of a quote-unquote Islamic state start to be formulated by some of these great uh, uh, Islamic philosophers like, um, you know, Maududi and, and so, some of these some of these great uh, Al-Afghani, these sort of great thinkers. Um, however, the Iranian model is quite different. Iran is a Shia nation. Um, Shia represent about 15% of the world's Muslim population. And it's a split very much like Catholic and, Catholics and Protestants in, in Christianity. Um, Iran is the largest Shia nation in the world that historically has been kind of the the leader of the Shia world. Shiism, it, you know, it has its distinctions from Sunni Islam, the mainstream kind of orthodox, if you will, Islam. But one of its biggest differences is that Shiism is a profoundly messianic religion, right? It is a religion that believes that a messianic figure, the Mahdi, as he's known in Islam, uh, is going to come at any time. And when he comes, he will create the perfect society. That until then, the society as it exists right now is not just imperfect, but it's, uh, it's illegitimate. Uh, and that all governments are really illegitimate. That all political uh, leadership is just a usurpation of the Mahdi's leadership when he comes at the end of time. Now, the fascinating thing is, is that for 1400 years, this theology has created a Shia clerical system that has been adamant about not having anything to do with politics, right? The Shia clergy for 1400 years ex explicitly removed themselves from any kind of political participation in society, let alone you know, rule or governmental, you know, uh, rule of any kind, because doing so would usurp the authority of the Messiah. And then in the 60s, this one cleric, this one junior Ayatollah, very brilliant man, but not a very significant person, started to write these series of tracts and books in which he created this new way of thinking, a way of thinking that is actually will be very familiar to a lot of American Christians because it's essentially Christian millenarianism. Christian millenarianism is the belief, and it's a belief held by most Christians in the world, especially most Christians in America, that rather than sit around and wait for Jesus to return, for all the prophecies to be fulfilled so Jesus will return and usher in the end of time, why don't we fulfill those prophecies so that Jesus will return, right? We will create the situation that will then compel the end of time. Well, this particular mullah, this, this junior ayatollah, essentially translated that into Shia terms. Rather than sit around and wait for the Mahdi to return to create the perfect society, we should create the perfect society for him so that he returns. Now, the perfect society is a society that is predicated on Islamic, you know, morality, Islamic law, Islamic principles. And the, per and who is the best arbiter of what Islamic law and Islamic morality and Islamic principles are? Well, we are. The Ayatollahs, but not all the Ayatollahs. Shiism, like Judaism, is it's like rabbinical Judaism, right? Like every rabbi has a different opinion, and no rabbi can outrank any other rabbi. You know, if this rabbi says drink Coke, Pepsi is evil, and this rabbi says drink Pepsi, Coke is evil, there's no mechanism to say who is right and who is wrong. A Jew can just choose this rabbi over that rabbi. The same is true with uh, Islam. The imams can't outrank each other. Just one person says X and one person says Y. So it can't be all of the ayatollahs who are in charge. It should just be one ayatollah who's in charge. And that ayatollah should have the same power as the prophet himself, because he is, after all, the earthly representation of the Messiah. 
And his job is to create the society that would, in, that would compel the Messiah to return. Well, this Ayatollah's name was Khomeini, Ruhollah Khomeini. Um, and in the 60s and 70s, these were just tracts that nobody except, you know, his fellow Ayatollahs would read. And interestingly enough, his fellow Ayatollahs thought he was nuts. They thought this was this, not just the dumbest idea they had ever heard, but that it was blasphemous. It was just plain blasphemy. Uh, the idea that the mullahs should actually take have a role in government, not just have a role, but be in charge of government, and not just be in charge of government, but have the same authority as the Prophet Muhammad, this was blasphemous. And he was roundly rejected by uh, his uh, contemporaries and the senior ayatollahs. Well, you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Uh, you know, post-79, he becomes the leader of this, uh, you know, post-revolutionary movement uh, in the chaos, the aftermath of the revolution when the, pro the provisional government, a bunch of technocrats, collapses as a result of the Iran hostage crisis um, and there's a vacuum of power. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini steps into that vacuum of power. He creates a referendum for the Iranian people in 1980. The referendum has one question on it. Do you want to live in an Islamic Republic? Yes or no? No definition of what an Islamic Republic is. No explanation of what that means or who gets to define it or even who runs it. Just yes or no. And 96% of Iranians said yes. And he used that mandate to create what we now refer to as the Islamic Republic of Iran, a country in which one man has full political and religious authority in violation of everything that Shia Islam has stood for for 1400 years. And by the way, to this day, to this day, that view, the view, it's called Velayat al-Faqi, the view that essentially has created and sustains the Islamic Republic of Iran, is considered blasphemous. It's considered heretical. If you go to Najaf today, which is still the Vatican of the Shia world, the, the mullahs there, the ayatollahs there, not only roundly reject what they refer to as Khomeiniism, but they actively teach against it. They teach their, their courses, their seminary courses are very much predicated on how wrongheaded that view is. But, you know, 40 something years later, it's still the governing system in Iran. I have Isn't that fascinating? You, <laughs> yeah, very, very much so, Reza. Uh, as a man born in Iran, uh, who is an American, what you make of the hostile relations between our two countries, the beating of the drums of war, the characterization of Iran as a mortal enemy yeah. of the West, uh, do you buy that? Uh, how do you process that? Well, look, there, you know, the last four decades have created a, a schism between these two countries that I think is very difficult to, um, you know, fix. Um, I think the hostage crisis was a real blow to the American psyche. Um, America's overwhelming support for Saddam Hussein during an eight-year devastating war with Iran that resulted in the death of a million people on both sides um, has never been forgiven uh, by the Iranian side. And the truth of the matter is that for much of the last four decades, the American government and the Iranian government have in large part defined themselves in opposition to the other. Right. Certainly that was the case in the 80s, you know, uh, in the United States. And it's still the case, uh, frankly, today. You still see it a lot, especially among some of these Republicans. There's a, a bill in Congress right now, as we speak, banning travel to and from Iran, you know, 40 something years, uh, you know, after the, the revolution. So that animosity is still there. But I think what any observer of Iran will tell you is that it's an animosity that's not shared by the people at all. I mean, 
Iranians are unquestionably the most pro-American population. You know, I was going to say in the Middle East, but maybe the world, honestly, maybe the world. Um, any American who has ever visited Iran will tell you this exact same sentence, that they are blown away by how much Iranian people love Americans, love America, American culture, American music, American food. Um, they have the ability, the Iranian population has the ability to distinguish between the Iranian people and the, I'm sorry, between the American people and the American government in a way that I think Americans aren't very good at. We have a hard time differentiating the Iranian people from the Iranian government. Hence, you know, these foolish laws. No one can travel to and from Iran anymore. You know, I mean, who is this helping? I'm not, I was like, what is the policy behind this kind of, uh, of law that very well may pass, actually, Cong it may very well may pass Congress. Um, I do think that the more people, American people and Iranian people are connected to each other, Social, through social media, through you know regular media, the more that uh, bridge can be formed between the two cultures. But I have very little confidence that there will be anything uh, approaching normalization of relations between the Iranian government and the American government, no matter who's in charge in either place, frankly. Um, there's a lot of bad blood and a lot of anger and animosity uh, behind this rift. And it's going to take a lot, I think, to, to fix that. Well, in this uh, spirit, I feel obliged to mention the Iranian support for terrorism, uh, the relations of uh, Iran to the uh, Hezbollah and the Hamas uh, insurgencies or uh, resistance or terror, depending on your point of view, uh, that's a deal breaker, no? For, for, for relations for the between the politics? No, it is absolutely not a deal breaker for American government policy because we love terrorists, just our terrorists. And we <laughs> love governments that support terrorism as long as it's for our purposes. Yeah, so that's that's not a a deal breaker. But um, that Iranian terrorism has resulted in the deaths of many Americans. Um, that is something that is very hard to get past. You're, you're absolutely right about that. I do think that before we talk a little more about this, we need to get, there's so much disinformation, deliberate disinformation right now uh, when it comes to the war between um, Israel and Gaza. Uh, and one of the big pieces of disinformation is that this was all, you know, Iran's doing. Iran had absolutely nothing to do with the Hamas attack on Israel. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the American national security apparatus. Um, and I think the best sort of sign that we know that I Iran didn't do any, had, didn't have anything to do with, uh, with it is just how surprised and taken aback the Iranian uh, government has been about everything and how, despite the, the rhetoric, they have yet to take any kind of uh, active measures uh, against Israel or on behalf of um, the Palestinians trapped in Gaza. And this might be because, well, let me put it this way. I think this is a, a, a good window into how Iran thinks about its support for uh, designated terrorist organizations like Hamas, like Hezbollah, is that they truly do believe, this is from Iran's perspective, I just want to kind of bring that, bring that to it. This, how does Iran think about this? Iran believes that it is besieged on all sides by enemies. And frankly, if you look at a map, it's true. We literally have military bases practically encircling Iran. Iran believes that it is under an existential threat from Israel. And frankly, that's true. You know, uh, Iran has made a lot of threats to the existence of Israel. 
Israel has an unnamed number of nuclear weapons right now pointed at Tehran. Right now. And not they may one day develop nuclear capabilities that could possibly threaten Israel. We have nuclear weapons tipped on missiles, and those missiles are pointed at Tehran. So from Iran's perspective, it is the one that is under siege. And it sees Hezbollah and Hamas as a kind of security guarantee, right? In a confrontation with Israel, Iran will be turned to glass. Iran has no hope in a direct confrontation with Israel, which is partly why it's kind of kept its mouth shut right now. Uh, But it can use proxy forces like Hezbollah, like Hamas, to do tremendous damage to Israel if it feels as though uh, Israel were about to attack in some way. And so that's how it thinks about those forces. Currently, in this, in this situation, with the world's eyes on, on Israel right now, um, it just does not behoove the Iranian government to poke the bear, right? The last thing it wants to do is a reason why we've yet to see any real activity or involvement from Hezbollah in this conflict. Because if I were to guess, I'm sure that Iranian military commanders are telling Hezbollah, stay out of it for right now. Right? Maybe later, maybe if things get really, really bad, we will need to sort of unleash uh, our proxy force in the north. But as it is right now, you know, because the line between Hezbollah and Iran is direct, as opposed to with Hamas, it supports Hamas, but in, in many indirect ways. But Hezbollah is funded and armed by Iran, right? Those, um, that any attack on, on Israel from Hezbollah will... Yeah rightly be seen as an attack from Iran. And that's the last thing Iran needs right now. Well, if Iran is so vulnerable to the formidable Israeli arsenal, why uh, do they, the government, make these threatening statements about uh, driving the Israelis into the sea? What's behind that? Yeah, because this is a government with absolutely no legitimacy whatsoever. Now, One can say that that it never really had all that legitimacy to begin with, but certainly over the last two decades, when you see the uprisings in the 90s and the early 2000s, and certainly the Green Movement in 2009, and absolutely the women's movement that just occurred in 2023, and the response of the Iranian government to it, and not just that, but the absolute economic collapse of society, um, this government no longer has any legitimacy. Remember, this government's entire founding ideology is that we are creating the perfect society on behalf of the Messiah. Iran is as far from the perfect society as it gets. And every Iranian knows this, that society in Iran is, as I've said a couple of times now, really on the verge of total collapse. And the government has no legitimacy left whatsoever. What little legitimacy it managed to hold on to was from its place as the moral arbiter of society, right? We are the moral foundation of society. Well, you start mowing down young, you know, 18, 17 year old girls on the streets, and yeah. that's it for your moral leg- legitimacy, right? They have lost all of that. The only card that they can play any longer is the anti-U.S., anti-Israel card, which is why every time, you know, the government is threatened from within, uh, it pulls out those cards, right? It's the great Satan card. It's, you know, the, the Jewish state card. Um, they use this as a way of trying to drum up any kind of support or loyalty or validity, legitimacy uh, for their own rule because they don't have any left. But I will tell you this, it's not really working anymore. And I just want to be clear, it's not working anymore, not because the Iranian population isn't pro-Palestinian or that the Iranian population isn't against, you know, the Israeli occupation and all of that stuff. It's that they've stopped caring. The Iranian population doesn't care anymore 
about Palestinians, doesn't care about Israel, doesn't care about Hezbollah, doesn't care about Syria, doesn't care anymore. They are, you know, when you're working three jobs in order to just barely feed your children, <laughs> it's hard to care about what's happening in other parts of the world. Iran's, you know, foreign influence is the least of your concerns. And so this rhetoric is falling on deaf ears. Nothing you have said so far disabuses me of the idea that it would be a very bad thing indeed were the Iranian regime to acquire the capacity to construct and deliver nuclear weapons. Do you agree? Oh, God, God, yes. Look, I spent eight years on the board of the Plowshares Fund, which is the world's premier anti-nuclear proliferation uh, organization. So this is my focus and energy is anti-nuclear proliferation. I don't think anyone should have nuclear weapons, uh, but especially, you know, non-signatories of the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. You know who's a non-signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty that has upwards of 500 nuclear weapons? Yes, you do, Glenn. Yes, the yes. state of Israel, yes. which neither confirms nor denies that it possesses <laughs> the capacity. Yeah, well, that's, we that's just called BS, <laughs> as, as, we all, as we all know. I don't think Israel should have nuclear weapons. Um, but most definitely, Iran should not have nuclear weapons. The question is, is, how do we make sure that they don't have nuclear weapons? Well, we did. We did. That's what the, uh, the, the, the nuclear uh, treaty that President Obama managed to uh, get not just the, the, the entirety of UN Security Council, including China and Russia, uh, but also Germany to back uh, was about. And it worked. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Association. Iran, a year into that treaty, no longer had the enriched uranium necessary to construct a bomb. We are now five years removed from President Trump tearing up that treaty. And Iran, again, according to the IAEA, has enough stockpile of enriched uranium that if they chose to, they could convert that into weapons-grade material and develop a nuclear weapon. So the question isn't, you know, should Iran have nuclear weapons or not? I think the world is pretty much united on the fact that, no, they should not. The question is, is how do we do that? And that shouldn't be a question that we're still asking. We know the answer. We've seen the answer play out in front of us. Through negotiations and diplomacy, we managed to get them to the point where they could not develop nuclear weapons. Rejecting diplomacy and negotiations and pursuing a quote-unquote hardline strategy has gotten them back to the place where they were before that treaty started, which is on the verge of developing nuclear weapons should they choose to do so. Okay, well, we're about out of time here, but, uh, but the axis of evil, Russia, Iran, China, not just the support for terrorism, not just the repression of the domestic pol uh, population uh, by the crazy mullahs, uh, but also alliances with uh, enemies of the West. What do you say? Yeah, you know, um, the one thing that I learned in my years of kind of working for and with um, the U.S. government was that foreign policy is not predicated on what is best for the world. Foreign policy is predicated solely on self-interest. Nothing else matters. America's foreign policy isn't about promoting democracy or promoting human rights. I mean, only an ignorant child would continue to say such a thing. American foreign policy is predicated on one thing and one thing only, our national interests and nothing else. If our natural national interests means supporting terrorist organizations in Latin America, that is what we will do. If our national interests means promoting dem democracy in the Middle East, that's what we will do. We will pursue our national interests without any thought given to, you know, morality or anything like that. And yet we're surprised <laughs> when the rest of the world does the exact same thing. Well, of course, Iran is working against America's national interest. Of course it is. Of course, it's using 
non-state entities and terror organizations to work against American foreign policy interests. Like, why is that surprising to anyone? It's, it's what every nation on earth does. Uh, but we are very quick to demonize other nations for doing it without actually looking at ourselves. This isn't obviously in any way, you know, an attempt to justify or excuse the actions of Russia or China or Iran. It's just a reminder to everyone that maybe we ought to look in the mirror before we start making moral judgments of how other nations pursue their national interests, because we do the exact same thing. That's going to be the last word here from Reza Aslan. Uh, I thank you very much. The book is called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Thanks so much, Reza Aslan. It was my pleasure, Glenn. Thanks for having me.